When it comes to youth mental health, to say that things are not okay would be an understatement. For the past year and a half, our children and teens have been watching us as we stress, we lose jobs, we live with uncertainty, and we lose people that we love. On top of that, they've had to deal with their own isolation, homeschooling, and missed milestones. But let's be honest here. Even before the pandemic, things were dire. According to the US Surgeon General, one in three high school students reported persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness way before COVID-19 was on our radar. So for this Radio 101 special, we grown-ups take a back seat as we hear straight from the source what is it that our youth is really going through. This is Dispatches from Within. For this first story, youth reporters Janae Brokenborough, Sophie Welch, and Watson Carter look into what it means for a transgender student to walk the halls of a public school as they transition. It's an everyday ritual of attendance. Nothing too interesting about it. You know your name, you've been called that your entire life, right? When I first started switching names, I didn't really mind my old name. It didn't really bother me, but now I hear it and it's it just doesn't match with who I am anymore. That's M. And it's certainly uncomfortable. I don't really like to I don't like to see it and I don't I don't really It's hard to say cuz it's something I spend a lot of my time just sort of trying to not think about. My pronouns are zzm zerself and um, I'm 16 years old. We're not using Zer's full name to protect M's privacy. I'm non-binary, so I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do, like, transition-wise right away. So I, I mean, I kept things the same for a while. I had two feet of hair. I wore skirts and dresses and stuff like that. And the more time I spent, the more I started kind of leading away with that. About two and a half years ago, I just decided to, you know, shave my head and... Definitely, I think once I looked more trans, people started to treat me differently. It became a little bit more difficult for people to stomach when it wasn't something they could ignore. I found that people were pretty chill with me being gay or non-binary or whatever it was when I looked like a girl. And once I came out, people didn't want to work with me on group projects anymore. Like once I cut my hair and all of that, people didn't want to work with me on group projects. People didn't want to talk to me. No one really wanted to interact with me anymore. I was something else. It's like there was everybody else and then there was me. Everyday activities become huge hurdles from teachers calling you the right name to what bathroom you should use or lockers. Or even when during PE, students get divided into boys and girls teams. And for M and every other transgender student, this means to keep having the same conversation about who they are with every single teacher, student, and administrator they interact with. 
a lot of trans people, there's sort of, there's something, they, there's a point you get to where you pass, which means you look the way, you look the way that you identify and people will assume the correct pronouns for you. But when you're non-binary, he, nobody's going to assume they, them, nobody's going to assume zem. them. So I know that I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life explaining to people who I am. It kind of sucks. I, I really, it's exhausting. It's, it's a lot to explain, especially when I know like some people are going to take it really well and others aren't. It's kind of scary and it's really tiring to just keep having to do it over and over and over again and know that I'm going to be doing that forever. I think it would be really, really great if there was some sort of like general education about non-binary people and neo-pronouns that I could introduce myself, say my name, say that I use Zizems or Zerself, all of, all of that, and people would know what it meant and I could be done with just those two sentences instead of having to go through the whole explanation of the history of neo-pronouns and like where they come from, and why they're not grammatically incorrect. As for right now, there are only six states in the country that have curricular standards that include affirming representation of LGBTQ plus communities. North Carolina is not one of them. There are also states like Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Mississippi that have what's known as quote-unquote no-pro-homo laws in place. These laws prohibit any sort of LGBTQ plus representation in K-12 curriculums, but it's not just states. The SAT, the most widely used standardized test for college admission in the U.S., still says that it's incorrect to use they, them as a singular pronoun. For these like academic, well-respected organizations to say that's wrong, I'm not wrong, I'm me. Some things that a school can really take action on to be inclusive include making sure that you're using the correct name and pronouns for youth, that their identity is being fully respected all of the time. My name is Casey Pick and uh, my pronouns are she and her. I am proud to be the Senior Fellow for Advocacy and Government Affairs at The Trevor Project. The Trevor Project is a worldwide nonprofit that works to end suicide among lesbians, gays, bisexual, transgenders, queers, and questioning young people. We have data and science that actually shows us that being in a space that is welcoming and affirming is like significantly better for an LGBTQ young person's mental health. And even just having one accepting adult in an LGBTQ young person's life will reduce their odds of a suicide attempt by 40%. In the classroom, this can be as simple as adding a rainbow flag somewhere or sticker that says safe space. 
But I find that the most effective way to really communicate to young people that I am a safe and welcoming person is to make sure that I say things that are clear to that effect. Um, introducing my class as being, this is a safe space where we respect everybody's differences and that we embrace all kinds of families. Just putting it out there. There's no reason not to. And while those changes might seem small, for someone like M, they can mean the difference between life and death. There's like no one has called me slurs or tried to beat me up or said anything any anything like that, but it's it's sort of like a death by with a thousand paper cuts situation where I talk about it all the time and it's it's exhausting and it's a lot, but when I when I talk about it now it kind of seems like it's not that big a thing. It's all of these little things that add up to be something that's draining. This story was produced by Janae Brockenborough, Sophie Welch, and Watson Carter as part of the Radio 101 series on youth mental health. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's a free 24-hour hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. You're listening to Dispatches from Within, a special Radio 101 program brought to you by the National Board for Certified Counselors. When we come back, we look at how fast the way a teen perceives their body can take them down a dark path. One, I know that I'm doing something wrong. Two, I know that I know that I'm doing something wrong now. And I didn't come across a time until I was with my doctor and alone and the very end of that, that I was like, I can bring it up now. We'll be right back. Support for Dispatches from Within comes from the National Board for Certified Counselors, striving to expand equitable access to mental health services across the globe. Information on local available national certified counselors at nbcc.org. You're listening to Dispatches from Within, a special Radio 101 program. I'm Gabriel Maisonave. While nobody knows for sure what sets off an eating disorder, there is growing consensus that the cause is a mix of biological, psychological, and sociocultural elements. For this next story, we take a look at what it's like for a teenager to struggle with the way that she perceives herself. Radio 101 reporters Sarah Bettis, Kelly Brenner, and Sarah Rhodes-Cox take it from here. I think it started maybe winter-ish, like beginning, mid-winter-ish of, yeah, it was like November, December-ish of 2020. This is Elle. We're just using her initial to protect her privacy. My mind's racing. <laughs> um, I would describe myself as an empath. A daughter and a sister, a friend. I think I'm caring. I can be passionate and determined. But she's also been struggling with body image. 
for a while. I always think I'm fat, I'm ugly, and I'm stupid. Like, that's always the first thought. And it's almost like it's not me saying it. It's like in my head, it's someone else saying that to me. She's not alone. According to the latest research, over 80% of girls our age reported not being happy with their body. And the link between the data and the amount of time we spend on social media is becoming increasingly impossible to ignore. And the worst part is that apparently some of it's by design. Here's Tristan Harris, co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology in front of Congress in 2019. It was much cheaper to, instead of getting your attention, to get you addicted to getting attention from other people. And this has created the kind of mass narcissism and mass cultural thing that's happening with, with young people, especially today. According to Harris, the mental health of teenage girls and the way we see ourselves took a sharp decline with the introduction of platforms like Facebook and Instagram. We get social media feeds, whether that's Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, even Pinterest, which I love so much, but like I'm seeing, I'm not necessarily seeing all these girls with different body types and even Photoshop, like how, how, um, even girls who are posting something for Instagram who have a hundred or so followers, like it's, it's constantly being thrown at us and it can be like interpreted in our brain and put on ourselves. This idea that compared to all these girls. I'm fat, I'm ugly, and I'm stupid. I would encourage young women who are looking at media images um, to critically look at those images and ask themselves, who is profiting by me being, feeling bad about myself in this moment? Dr. Ellen Robinson is a pediatrician with Novant Health in Winston-Salem. She sees a lot of this. A lot of girls that go to her practice because these feelings of not being able to achieve that photoshopped flat stomach or perfect legs got to be too much for them to handle. A lot of patients really have an unhealthy relationship with food and an unhealthy relationship with their body weight. Um, so I would say not a lot of officially diagnosed eating disorders, but lots and lots of patients that have eating issues of some description. Which brings us back to Elle. Well, I don't necessarily like how I look. The feelings of inadequacy, the images she kept seeing online, the little comments here and there. It all caught up to her by the end of 2020. Elle started to purge her food. Now, the thing that you should know about Elle is she's a really open person. She's the type of person that will tell you her whole life story the second you meet her. But she kept this to herself. Nobody in her family knew. I was doing a health course for BYU, like an online health course that, my, that I signed up with school. And one of the first chapter was on mental health and like mental and physical health and stuff. And one of the things that was discussed was bulimia and anorexia. And one of the things that I picked up on was that people with bulimia, like, understand that there's something wrong. And people with anorexia don't necessarily pick up that there's something, like, there's something, like, seriously wrong. And that made me think, one, I know that I'm doing something wrong. Two, I know that I know that I'm doing something wrong now. Hiding bulimic practices is part of living with this eating disorder. You live with the secret, the guilt, 
it's a double life? I think it was one of the things that kind of distanced me as well. Because it was just like another thing that I had to myself and another thing that was pulling me from everyone. One night after a fight with her mom, Elle went down to the basement to perch. I used my fingers. And, um, and I, I mean, I have nails, and I felt, like, guilt and shame and, like, all these things, and so I went into our basement, and I, I saw a little, a little bit of blood come up, and I was terrified. I was so nervous. She had scratched her throat. And I was crying and I was like so worried. And then we got my we eventually got my mom in there and we had to call a friend who's dealt with this. A family friend who's dealt with this. And she asked us all these questions. We were we were like panicking, looking up stuff, wondering if we had to go to the hospital. And it was it was scary. She did not have to go to the hospital. It was just a small scratch but it was impossible to hide it anymore. Elle needed help. She starts seeing a nutritionist and a therapist, and she's been slowly getting better, working hard to be able to accept who she is, not who the internet or other people tell her to be. And I hope I can one day, because I feel like accepting yourself for who you are is the biggest, it, it can free you. And I can't wait till I get to that. For 88.5 WFDD, I'm Kelly Brenner. This story was produced by me, Sarah Rhodes Cox, and Sarah Bettis. If you or someone you know is in crisis, get in touch with the National Eating Disorder Association. You can text NEDA to 741741 and you'll be connected with a crisis specialist at any time. You're listening to Dispatches from Within, a special Radio 101 program brought to you by the National Board for Certified Counselors. When we come back, our reporters take us on a journey to understand the role of school psychologists. The way we do school now is, the, is a lot different than 15 years ago. We'll be right back. Support for Dispatches from Within comes from the National Board for Certified Counselors. Mental health counselors are available in communities and schools to help. The National Suicide Hotline number is 800-273-TALK if experiencing thoughts of suicide. I'm Gabriel Maisonabe, and you're listening to Dispatches from Within, a special Radio 101 program. In a survey of over 1,600 high school students in the Winston-Salem Forsyth County School District, only one respondent mentioned the presence of school psychologists as a resource for those people in crisis. This led our Radio 101 reporters Addison Ashby, Christian Morrison, and Elizabeth Seal to try and figure out what exactly is the role of school psychologists and what is the impact they can have on the mental health of students. Unfortunately, this has become a familiar sound in our lives. 
Good day, everyone. I'm Kristen Dahlgren in New York, and we are coming on the air at this hour with news of a school shooting in South Florida. Good evening. It began as an ordinary school day, and it was almost over when gunfire erupted this afternoon. We even saw that here in our city just a few weeks ago. For the second time this week, there's been a shooting at a North Carolina high school. This one happening in Winston-Salem. Right now, we know a student was... When something like this happens, schools often offer counseling for parents and students who need to talk. But that's not what the story is about. For this story, we want to focus on things that lead up to an event like this. We want to try and figure out what preventative measures are in place for students who are nearing that breaking point and feel like this is the only way out. So let's start from the beginning. I probably have a caseload of about close to 300, maybe a little bit over. Um, it, it does vary year to year, depending on how many students with the last names that fall into my alphabet. That is Christina Wiley. She is one of our school counselors at RJR. If your last name starts with any of the letters S, B through Z, she's your gal. Right off the bat, that number set off a red flag for us. One person in charge of 300 students. It seemed too much. But according to the American School Counselor Association, that's the norm. The national average is actually 400 to 1. So, if the number is not the problem, maybe the scope is? As a high school counselor, we are trained in some of the mental health aspects when it comes to helping students, but we are certainly not the most qualified for the more intensive um, therapeutic needs of uh, some students or that some students or even families may be having. Are you anxious about SATs or is a hard class making you feel bad? Then the school counselor can probably help you with that. Talk it out with you. But if you're dealing with some bigger trauma, if you're depressed or in a very dark space, then they'll refer you to someone else. Sometimes outside of the school, sometimes inside, which leads us to the second stop in our student mental health tour, school psychologists. When you're thinking about mental health supports, when you're thinking about a good school climate, when you're thinking about um, positive learning environments, you know, a comprehensive school safety approach really is a balance of psychological and building security and physical safety. That's Stephanie Ellis. She is the School Safety and Crisis Response Committee Chair for the North Carolina School Psychologists Association. In the state of North Carolina, um, we are considered um, a multi-tiered system of support district, right? We try to align all of our practices with a multi-tiered system of support, which means that we comprehensively develop interventions for students. Think of it as a pyramid. We look at core, which is what everybody gets, and then there are some students who may not respond to core instruction for academics, behavioral, and social-emotional. So what we would do is we would layer those interventions on and provide more support in addition to core. The second step in the pyramid. And then more intensive supports, which are more individualized for students who really need individualized support. Which in theory sounds great. A whole team of school counselors, psychologists, social workers, nurses, all working together, developing the best intervention for the student. And according to Ellis, this approach works. The way we do school now is, the, is a lot different than 15 years ago, right? It's different because we're more aware of what, of how social emotional um, learning really does impact our students. And so the better off we can put those things in place and be more preventative instead of reactionary, the better off our students are in their physical and emotional well-being. I can say in our district, using these team and models we're talking about, um, we have seen like a 30% reduction in our suicide and threat assessments from that approach. But 
and you knew there was going to be a buck coming. We do see more increasing needs. We have more and more students who have suicidal thoughts, who have thoughts of harming others. And in economic terms, while the demand for services is going up, the offer has remained stagnant. The current ratio is like one school psychologist almost 2,000 students. Jackie Zenz is the president of the North Carolina School Psychologist Association. So if you're serving five schools and you're only able to be in a school one day a week, you're not able to provide as robust, comprehensive services, and it becomes an equity issue. And these kids are not having equitable access to the, to the whole range of services that can be provided by these teams when that's the setup. And you're putting a lot of pressure on school counselors. Since they are in the building at all times, they have to pick up the slack. So we got to one of the problems, not enough school psychologists. So in like 2020, there are 281 licensed school psychologists in the state who weren't working in the role of a school psychologist in the public schools. Um, tw about 209 responded to a survey. And of the 209, 20% cited um, leaving the field because of low pay. And then a little bit more than half indicated that a salary increase would encourage them to return to work. In May of 2021, a bill that could change some of this was introduced to the House, HB 749. The bill would provide around $14 million in funding for the retention and recruitment of school psychologists. Will the bill make it out of the committee for a floor vote? Time will tell. This story was produced for 88.5 WFDD by me, Elizabeth Seal, Christian Morrison, and Addison Ashby as part of your Radio 101 series on youth mental health. You're listening to Dispatches from Within, a special Radio 101 program brought to you by the National Board for Certified Counselors. When a young person dies by suicide, the rest of us are left wondering why. And while there's never a simple answer to that question, this next story tries to get us closer to one. Our Radio 101 class opened up our voicemail for teens to speak out in a safe space, in their own words. But first in the piece, Dr. Jill Harkaby Friedman from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention explains that talking about suicide can be uncomfortable, but it's necessary. In 1985, I got involved in research in teen suicide. And honestly, I got into it because first of all, people thought te teens didn't think about it. And here we are now in 2021 talking about it, but in a really different and much more developed way. We've learned so much. And that comes from asking people and finding out about their experiences. I've never been very confident in myself, but I still excelled, or so I was told, in very many mediums. Art, writing, academics, cooking, anything you name it, I had at least tried to try and become a master at it. I don't want anyone to see how weak I truly am because I know how much that would crush people's expectations of me. When COVID hit, I felt so trapped inside so isolated, even more than I already had. It was at this time that I tried to find a way out.
we know that when people are at that point, they isolate, they withdraw, they may do reckless things. But we're still trying to figure out what takes someone who's thinking about it to actually engage in the behavior. They, probably, they most often feel desperate. They feel like it's not going to go away. They feel like even if people love them and they love people, that they're a burden. And they mistakenly think that people will be better off without them. It was night. I remember looking out my window and just seeing no one really around. I, I was just feeling alone and just in a very deep, dark place that night. But I remember calling my friends and family, maybe for them to, you know, dig me out of this hole I was thinking myself was into. And no one answered. So that sucked. I mean, it was like 11 o'clock at night, and they probably do or do homework or they went to bed. So. And so I was just feeling very alone at that moment. And I thought, well, if no one's going to answer the phone or answer their texts, might as well, you know. And I've always had the thoughts, which sucks. And I, and I attempted that night. So if you notice a change, a change in mood, a change in behavior, or a change in what people are saying, it's important to take to, to pay attention to that. They may say, oh, next year this won't matter, or after the final, I won't have to worry about school anymore. They may give things away that, they, that are important to them. They say that they don't fit in anymore. So they give these kind of subtle clues, and sometimes they say, I feel like killing myself. So when you hear that, you wanna pay attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is kind of hard to uh, talk about because I'm still kind of going through the motions after it, you know. So like the days following after, it was what like walking on eggshells. It was hard. I wanted to to just cry every day after my attempt because I didn't I didn't succeed, you know. But um, my friends. Help me keep trucking, help me keep going. My mom also got me the right tools that I needed to uh, keep myself um, alive and not a danger to anyone else or myself. And I'm really grateful now because <laughs> I, I love life. If someone tells you they're thinking about suicide, and they say, don't tell anyone, tell someone, because an angry friend is better than a dead friend, right? And also, when they feel better, they will be glad that you told someone. We know this about people who've tried to kill themselves in very serious ways. The minute they start, they wish they hadn't done it. So our efforts for people who are at risk is to help them get through crisis periods, because we know they come and go. The attempt did not work, and I'm so glad it did not work because I would have missed out in life. I am doing super well right now. I mean, I'm at times I'm 
I'm not as good as I want to be, but I'm doing much better than that one night. I'm working on being more vulnerable, but it's hard to. It's so damn hard to let other people know how much you're really struggling. I wish I could say my story has a happy ending, but I'm not sure it does. This story was produced by R.J. Reynolds High School students Melvin Abuaku and Chase Ori as part of the Radio 101 series on youth mental health. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's a free 24-hour hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. You're listening to Dispatches from Within, a special Radio 101 program brought to you by the National Board for Certified Counselors. When we come back, we look at the intersection of race and mental health. I think that unfortunately in our black culture, mental health has always been a stigma. We don't believe in getting um, or admitting that we're not okay. We'll be right back. Support for Dispatches from Within comes from the National Board for Certified Counselors, striving to expand equitable access to mental health services across the globe. Information on local available national certified counselors at nbcc.org. I'm Gabriel Maisonabe, and you're listening to Dispatches from Within, a special Radio 101 program. A special about youth mental health would be incomplete without looking into the subject of race. In this next story, Radio 101 reporters Kenya Crops, Kiwon McCrimmon, and Nakilia Jennings try to understand why it's so hard for black teens to receive the help they seek. Let me introduce you to T. Let's just say um, a group of girls, they were like really mean and my self-esteem was already like really low. She asked us not to use her full name. And I just couldn't deal with it anymore. And I just didn't, like I also hated myself at the same time. So T was going through a rough time at school. It was like, I just wanted to like just die. So I started writing notes to myself saying that I should kill myself to try to hype me up to do it. One of her friends found those notes and gave it to the teacher, who in turn gave them to the guidance counselor. I walked in and um, he told me to sit down. And so I sat down and then he was like, we need to talk about like the suicide notes. And I was like, "Um, all right. And then he like, he was like, why are you feeling this way? And I was like, because like, I just don't, I hate myself. And then apparently I'm not good enough for anybody else. And then he was like, all right, well, here's a notebook to write your feelings down in. And then so I went home and mom was like, why is your guidance counselor calling saying that you're writing suicide notes? And then I was like, because I was. And then she was like, like, you shouldn't be talking about killing yourself. So like she took the notebook, said that um, she'll give it to me when she feels I need it, which would be for school called the guidance counselor back and said that I was just looking for attention. And that right here is what I want to focus on. This idea that when a black girl acts out, she's just calling for attention. I think that unfortunately in our black culture, mental health has always been a stigma. We don't believe in getting um, or admitting that we're not okay. That's Keisha Horton. She's a licensed clinical addiction specialist. 
She works with teens and adults suffering from depression, anxiety, and trauma. She's also black. For some reason, our ancestors believed it was a sign of weakness um, to, to admit that you were not okay. And that has continued. So therefore, it's, and what goes on in my house stays in my house. Which for T was very much true. So I pretty much got a very loud cussing out. And then she was like, why are you like trying to talk about killing yourself? You should be happy. You have both parents and stuff like that. And I was like, okay. And I told her that I was sorry. And then like pretty much she did not help me feel better. And here we get to the problem that stories like T's have revealed for me. On one hand, we have this sort of cultural agreement that like Dr. Horton was saying, we can't show weakness. We can't talk about anything. I have to suck it up and move on showing the world the strong black girl I need to be. And on the other hand, we grow up surrounded by racial trauma that messes us up. Our childhood experiences really impact who we become more than people like to admit. And so there are some experiences that happen in certain cultures more than others. You know, like seeing on national TV George Floyd being killed by a cop or Breonna Taylor being killed in her apartment. But forget for a second these major racial traumas. A recent study from Rutgers University showed that black teens face an average of five racial discriminations a day. A day. Things like people talking about the way I choose to wear my natural hair, or maybe being asked to represent my race during a class discussion, or even a teacher treating me like a child. Like I'm not as smart as every other student in the class. Those things pile up. They eventually get to you. Those stigmas and those challenges that have been placed on our race for decades. So that contributes to a lot of the mental health issues we're seeing within our specific culture. And help is not that readily available for us, and it shows. We surveyed over 1,600 students, and while 33% of the Black teens admitted to having thought about harming themselves or taking their own lives, only 10% said they were currently receiving professional help. There are historical reasons why Black people might feel skeptical of medical treatment and mental health treatment. That's Ashish George. He's the director of public policy and the psychiatrist advanced director specialist at the North Carolina chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So, you know, in general, I think there's a history of marginalized people feeling excluded from the med medical establishment, from medical gains that might contribute to skepticism about mental health treatment and, you know, maybe even dismissal of reports of mental illness from their children, from the next generation. One thing we can do is um, have the people who are making the case for destigmatizing mental health care and embracing, you know, wider conception of what good, good health is. If we can make those people who make that case be, be from the community itself. I really want to be a therapist because I feel like more people will come to therapy if they see somebody that looks like them. So, it's important to clarify that according to Dr. Horton, it's not that Black people can only see a Black therapist. There are issues that anyone can be going through that a therapist of any race would be able to help you with. But what the past couple of years have shown us is that there are some traumas that are specific to Black people 
and will be better addressed by Black therapists. You may have a better result with someone who is of the skin color because your trauma or your symptoms are related to the color of your skin. And having a white therapist may trigger what you're feeling because a part of your problem is you don't like them or you feel hurt by them or you feel violated in some way due to their race. The latest data from the American Psychological Association shows that while Blacks make only 4% of the psychological workforce, that number almost triples when looking at entry-level positions, meaning that more and more people who look like me are out there getting their psych degree and hopefully making it easier to talk about mental health in the Black community, but it will take time. This story was produced by me, Kenya Crops, Kiwan McCrimmon, and Akila Jennings as part of 88.5 WFDD's Radio 101 series on youth mental health. You're listening to Dispatches from Within, a special Radio 101 program brought to you by the National Board for Certified Counselors. After the break, we go into the aftermath of a school shooting. The administrator screamed that he had a gun, and so that's when everyone started running, and then I was like, oh. We'll be right back. Support for Dispatches from Within comes from the National Board for Certified Counselors. Mental health counselors are available in communities and schools to help. The National Suicide Hotline number is 800-273-TALK if experiencing thoughts of suicide. You're listening to Dispatches from Within, a special Radio 101 program. I'm Gabriel Maisonabe. The death of William Miller Jr. at Mount Tabor High School in Winston-Salem this past September marked the second school shooting in North Carolina since the beginning of the school year. For this story, Radio 101 reporters Thomas Hunter and Philip McAllister pick up where a shooting ends and the process of healing for those left behind begins. On September 1st. So I just picked up on the scanner, Sheriff's Department's reporting gunfire at Mount Tabor High School. You can start swinging that way and maybe try to confirm. The lives of thousands of students that go to Mount Tabor High School in Winston-Salem changed forever. From what we can gather right now, suspect is still on the loose. Student has been shot. We're trying to get further. We're getting multiple calls also. William Miller Jr. was shot. He died. He was 15 years old. administrator screamed that he had a gun and so that's when everyone started running and then I was like oh that's Ben he's a student at Mount Tabor it was there the day that it all happened and so then I was like it took me a while to process it but as soon as I knew what was going on I instantly ran with them the story of the shooting kind of ends there I mean the school was placed on lockdown students were taken out and transferred to a different location to be reunited with their parents the suspect was apprehended about a week later, the students went back to class. Everybody was really calm. Usually a lot of people at Tabor are really like rowdy and just hyper, but a lot of it was just kind of a gloomy, dark feeling. This is where our story really begins. What happened to those who were left behind? What happens to the students who have gone back to school after something like this? To find the answer, we begin at one of the worst trauma a school 
has gone through in the recent history. Good morning. We have breaking news. So we're going to pause now for an ABC News special report. For those of you just joining in, we've been having coverage of the shooting at an elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut, the Sandy Hook Elementary School, in which 27 people were killed. 20 I'm Douglas Walker. I'm the Chief Programs Director at Mercy Family Center. Dr. Douglas Walker is a clinical psychologist with over 25 years of experience. He worked with some of the Sandy Hook families in the aftermath of the tragedy. We know that after a mass a casualty event, whether it's one person or many, there are basically five elements that are impacted, but also you can leverage for long-term recovery. The first is the, the sense of safety. This idea that schools should be, and according to experts, still are safe places. Basically, our brains can't really learn if we are not feeling safe. I think a lot of people are a lot more anxious and a little more worrisome. And so it kind of gets in our head. By the way, that's been again. Instead of learning, we're a little more cautious of what's going around. And that's an unfortunate reality. Whenever I hear a little like loud noise or something, it always just makes me just drop whatever I'm thinking and then just automatically focus on that. Our brains can become very sensitized to sound sites, what we call triggers or reminders. And so along with that sense of safety comes getting individuals' brains more in tune with the everyday. And that's part of what individual therapy does. Safety, calm, and then connectedness. And that can be difficult in terms of a shooting event because there are a lot of sides that can immediately be taken. So basically, there's a lot that is unknown. Why this person decides to take a gun to school? What was this person going through? It's so easy to take the side that fits our narrative without really having all the information. So coming together as a community may not be as easy as people believe. The fourth element that Dr. Walker mentioned is self-efficacy, and this is a tricky one. It's basically the idea that our actions are going to lead to more positive things. So if you're a good person, good things should happen to you. When something like a shooting happens, that notion is shattered. And finally, the fifth element that we always look for it comes in various ways is this idea of hope, that we can become uh, bigger than ourselves and that we can attach ourselves to the good in this world and, uh, and move forward. Move forward. I want to stop here for a second because during our interview, Ben said something that stuck with me. And just walking through those hallways again was just very unsettling to me especially going towards the auditorium because that's where we had to walk walk towards with our hands in the air. And we did, yeah, it was just unsettling to us. How do you move forward when you have to constantly walk through the place where it all happened? I think the first step is to not suppress it, to be willing to first acknowledge it and get support and support each other. That's David Osher. He's a vice president and institute fellow at American Institutes for Research. He's been researching this topic for a very long time. He even testified in front of Congress a couple of times and led an expert panel for the Department of Justice on this topic of school violence. You should not have to walk the hall feeling unsafe. But the way that you will ultimately be able to walk the hall and not keep on thinking about what happened is if the people around you 
make you feel okay with yourself and with the school and you know and let you have gone through not just the trauma but the grief i think that uh, ceremonies oftentimes can mark a time of new beginnings that's douglas walker again oftentimes the conversation is around when do we end remembering or recovering begin getting back to our normal or new normal in, in learning again. That is probably the most difficult question or conversations that I have with school administration because that grieving process is going to be different for everyone. Ceremonies, group meetings, spaces for students, parents, administrators just to talk to come together and allow themselves to be vulnerable and not let the pain win. Ben has been back to school for months now, slowly getting adjusted to the new normal, still walking the hallways where it all happened, but hoping the memories of having SWAT teams escort him out of the school will soon be replaced by better ones. A lot of people at Tabor are a lot more close now because there's people in my classes that I have literally never talked to, but. They checked up on me and I checked up on them also. And it's just like everybody around me has reached out to me and made sure I was okay. So it just, it feels amazing that people care that much about you. This story was produced by me, Philip McAllister and Thomas Hunter as a part of 88.5 WFDD's Radio 101 series on youth mental health. If you're struggling or know someone who is, know that there are resources available to you. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's a free 24-hour hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. You're listening to Dispatches from Within, a special Radio 101 program brought to you by the National Board for Certified Counselors. When we come back, what happens when the wrong coping mechanism takes over? After a while, it starts to hit you harder. And then, you know, the addiction type part starts rolling, like where it's like, it's mid-afternoon, but I need a beer. We'll be right back. Support for Dispatches from Within comes from the National Board for Certified Counselors, striving to expand equitable access to mental health services across the globe. Information on local available national certified counselors at nbcc.org. You're listening to Dispatches from Within, a special Radio 101 program. I'm Gabriel Maesanabe. Finding the right ways to cope with depression, anxiety, or any mental health issue can be tough, even if you're a grown-up with access to every available resource out there. For a teenager without a support system at home, this becomes virtually impossible. For this last segment, youth reporters Chloe Patterson, Shailen Sebastian, and Bailey Wickline bring us the story of a 16-year-old who found herself looking for a way out of her problems in the wrong place. Okay, uh, let's just get into it. Um, okay, so, what's your name? To protect her privacy, we're going to call her M. So, M struggled with her mental health most of her life. If you look at it, at like the good stuff, it looks like, you know, I just had a basic childhood. But, like, it's one of those things where if you look deeper in, it just wasn't the greatest because of the type of environment I was in. She grew up with an abusive stepfather, was bullied, and had to switch schools a lot. 
it was a lot of my mental health affecting my performance abilities in school. And then a lot of my depression made it hard for me to be motivated to even get out of bed some days to get to school. In October of 2020, M changed schools once again. She went to the special place for kids like her that would struggle in bigger environments. And it was there that she met a friend, we'll call her Kay. At first, it started with just her maybe giving me a ride home every now and then. And then we started, you know, to hang out after school before she took me home. And then it came to a point where we were, like, inseparable. We were attached to the hip. You never really saw us apart. At one point, I even moved in with her. They would do everything together. Spending time with Kay was an escape from the issues at home and the struggles with depression. But things quickly started to take a turn. We would usually, like, get high, get food, and then spend the day high. And then eventually we would, it would be where we would go to someone's house and get drunk and party until like 2 a.m. It's easier to drink and forget than to deal with your problems. And I'm not going to lie, that's how it was in the beginning. It was great. It felt amazing. It was so nice not have to deal with that type of stuff. But God, it gets to you fast. Like, after a while, it starts to hit you harder. And then, you know, the addiction type part starts rolling, like where it's like, it's mid-afternoon, but I need a beer. You know, you build up a tolerance to those types of things, and that's how an addiction settles in. And so it's like, the more tolerant I got, the more I smoked, the more I drank. M was 16 at the time, and this is important, not just because we're talking about underage drinking, but because the substance use was another indicator of something far darker happening to M. So there's something that's called adverse childhood experiences. Dr. Wanda Boone is the executive director of Together for Resilient Youth, a nonprofit organization that works to address the underlying causes of substance misuse. And what I find most often is that the adults that should have been paying attention, that should have cared, that had the capacity to do so, perhaps didn't. And those adverse childhood experiences she's talking about are things like emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, neglect, bullying, witnessing a traumatic event, the incarceration of family members, divorce, or history of mental illnesses, just to name a few. But if someone has four or more before their 18th birthday, then you can understand what a devastating impact that has. The mind forgets, but the body remembers. For M, the consequences of her adverse childhood experiences would become clear one night that changed everything. So, one night, M and K decided to go to a party. It was my, one of my guy best friend's graduation, so it was all, like, really loud Hispanic music. We're hanging out, he was drinking already, and there was this new type of beer that he was trying, and he wanted me to try it. And I was like, okay, cool, you know, I'll give it a try. I thought it was revolting. I thought it was disgusting, worst thing I ever tasted. But he, like, challenged me or, like, provoked me. I took it as a challenge. I started drinking. And one drink led to another and another. You know, started dancing, doing this, this, and this. And so I was, like, taking off my clothes. 
clothes. I was just running, like, dancing around in a sports bra and a pair of shorts. And then the last thing I really remember happening before, you know, I kind of blacked out, I, um, I remember just not feeling well. And I remember kind of just wanting to get out of there. The rest of the night was a blur until... I was just chilling. I was doing some homework. And that's when I started to receive the text messages. And so it really caught me off guard. Kay had filmed M and shared the video on Snapchat. People started to scream record it and pass it around. Even people that M didn't know that well started to reach out to her asking if she was the one in the video. To know that other people saw me like that, like not only at the party, but other people that weren't even there had the chance to see me like that. And the fact that I didn't even, I don't, I still don't even know how many people saw it or if other people sent it to other people and the video is still out there. It's just really, it just was really, really embarrassing to see that that type of thing of me was out there on the internet. After the video surfaced, M decided that something needed to change. And here we do need to make a note. M did not seek professional help. She decided to stop on her own. And while she is among the thousands of teenagers that while struggling, they decide not to seek treatment, this is not what experts recommend. Addiction is a brain disease. That's Dr. Boone again. Rather than desiring um, relationship, food, work, play, drugs, take, overtake the brain's desire for any of those things, which is why, you know, people act the way they do when they're addicted, don't want, you know, don't want to do anything, but it's not them. It's the takeover of the substance um, uh, in the brain. So no, it, it's not that easy if someone is addicted. M, however, is doing better. Her days of binge drinking as a way to avoid her problems seem to be behind her. I'm doing a lot better. I eat I think it's been like a month since I've had a single drink, but I'm working my way through it. There's, there's a lot of things I would have told my younger self. You are the only one who can decide who you are and what you're going to do about things and what you're going to do to yourself, to others, and just in life. You are the person at the end of the day who makes your own choices. So don't let others influence your choices or, you know, put you down or tell you who you have to be. This story was produced by Chloe Patterson, Bailey Wickline, and me, Shailen Sebastian, and it's part of the 88.5 WFTD's Radio 101 series on youth mental health. If you're struggling or know someone who is, you can reach out to the Substance Abuse and Health Services Administration helpline at 1-800-666-HELP. Dispatches from Within is a special Radio 101 program brought to you by the National Board for Certified Counselors. Radio 101 is made possible in part by a generous contribution from Woody Kleiner. The music you heard in the stories was from Blue Dot Sessions. 
You can find more information about our program on our website wfdd.org dispatches and we love to hear from you. If you have any feedback or you would like to share your story with us, you can reach us at WFDD Public Radio at WFU.edu. I'm Gabriel Maisonave. Thank you for listening. Support for Dispatches from Within comes from the National Board for Certified Counselors. Mental health counselors are available in communities and schools to help. The National Suicide Hotline number is 800-273-TALK if experiencing thoughts of suicide.